dismissed to junior church at this time. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Philippians, uh, probably about halfway through the New Testament, uh, turning to chapter 4 and verse 1. If you're having trouble finding it, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, then Hebrews. Um, of course, if you're using an electronic Bible, it's fairly easy, but real Bibles are still good and still very important. And so Philippians chapter uh, 4, verse 1, we've been walking through Philippians. And today we look at a loving exhortation to stand firm. A loving exhortation to stand firm as we look at this uh, beautiful letter. Actually, yeah, there we go. Colossians follows Philippians. So if you're still listening, I think, um, looking, then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, then Hebrews. Philippians 4, verse 1. A loving exhortation to stand firm. Chuck Swindoll writes the following. He says, The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to fellowship, uh, to the fellowship that Christ wants to give his church. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. They don't feel like they can know and be known in their church. They don't feel like they can love and be loved in the church. They don't feel like they can open up in their church family. Swindoll continues, with all my heart, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable, democratic, permissive, a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality. Our churches too often miss it. One reason I'm so behind Celebrate Recovery, it's an atmosphere, a DNA, where people can come in and talk and share. Now, some of you might have other groups where you can do that. And the only challenge I would give about that is maybe, just maybe, the difference between your group of friends is Celebrate Recovery also has a DNA. It has messages and testimonies to challenge that we don't stay or are at. We don't ignore if it's talked, whether we're talking about anxiety or anger or depression. We don't just say, oh, that's okay. I've got it too. No, 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 no. Christ wants to work on the whole person. There's a little booklet. I could get a copy for you. You might be able to find it free online. Almost everything's online now. Uh, called My Heart, Christ Home. My Heart, Christ Home. I referenced this, I think, last Wednesday at the Bible study. But since most of you weren't there, I'm going to reference it here as well. My Heart, Christ Home. It came out maybe 40 or 50 years ago, a little booklet. I mean, it's 20 pages or so. 
And it, it, it envisions Jesus working in your heart as if he's going through the rooms of a house. So Jesus is your guest in your house, just like he's in your heart, in your life. And as he goes through the living room, he might be sitting there and you meet with him every single day or most days. And then one day you come downstairs and you're in a hurry to get to work. You're just rushing off. And Jesus is sitting there and he says, hey, why don't we spend time together anymore? Or maybe then you say, that's true. You know, we need to spend time more together. And then, so then, you know, Jesus works on different rooms of the house. And of course, the rooms in the house represent your soul, your, your very life, every bit of your life, your, your anger, your anxiety, your depression, your fears, your pride, your greed, your selfishness, your gluttony. Gluttony is not a sin we usually talk about. Your lust, your unhealthy habits, I remember one particular part of that little booklet, My Heart Cries Home, the hall closet. The hall closet. Jesus is cleaning up different parts of the home, and again, the home represents our life. And, 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 there, and Jesus looks at one particular hall closet. It's a big hall closet. You can't have enough closet space, right? Um, big um, most of us would agree with that until we get a certain age and then our children would say, no, you got to get rid of stuff, dad. Anyways, um, there's that meme and it's a dad opening a garage. It's just full of junk. And he looks at his adult son. He says, someday, son, all of this will be yours. <laughs> um, so this big hall closet and Jesus looks at this hall closet and the door is still shut. And Jesus looks at the man or woman who's you and me. And he says, What's behind that door? And the person says, uh, we, don't, we don't really go into that door. That's where I have all my junk. Oftentimes, that's the stuff we don't want Jesus to work on. Jesus wants to work on the whole person. It's one of the steps in the 12-step program with Celebrate Recovery, which has uh, taken the 12-step program from the other groups and put scripture with it, as well as the, the um, principles of Celebrate Recovery too. Jesus wants to work on us. You gotta have a DNA though. And it takes both our own spiritual disciplines in our own life and the community of the church. And it's so easy to focus on one and leave out the other. Some of us are more communal driven. We're great with the community. But our individual spiritual disciplines lack. Some of us, the opposite. We love our daily quiet time with the Lord. But we don't really need a prayer partner, accountability partner, a very healthy small group. Now, we'll run to the counselor when there's a major problem, an anxiety attack that you haven't had in a while or a major anger episode. I've talked to some counselors who will say, look, I, I would love to help that person, but I can't because what they need is not one appointment with me, but several. And if we are healthy in community with good lifelong habits and healthy and good lifelong habits of individual spiritual disciplines, both, Jesus will work fabulously and amazingly in our life. The neighborhood bar, oftentimes people feel more comfortable to talk there than the church, and that's just unfortunate. As we look at today's passage in Philippians, we see Paul's love for the church. 
It reminds me of the story behind the hymn, blessed be the tie that, behind, that, that, that binds. Blessed be the tie that binds. And I'm sure most of you can even think of that wonderful short little hymn right now. Blessed be the tie that binds. It's written uh, by John Fawcett. John Fawcett lived between 1740 and 1817. We just cannot break the ties of affection that bind us to you, dear friends. Mary Fawcett said that as... She assured the little congregation at Waynesgate, England. She was, uh, she was assuring the little congregation at Waynesgate, England, of the bond of love that she and her husband felt for their poor peasant parishioners. Pastor John Fawcett decided to express his feelings in a poem about the value of Christian fellowship. The following Sunday, John Fawcett preached from Luke twelve fifteen, which says, A man's life consists not in the abundance of the things he possesses, He closed his sermon by reading his new poem, Brotherly Love. Brotherly Love. At the age of 26, John Fawcett and his new bride Mary began their ministry at an impoverished Baptist church in Waynesgate. After seven years of devoted service in meager circumstances, they received a call to the large and influential Carter's Lane Baptist Church in London. After the wagons were loaded for the move... The falsest met their tearful parishioners for a final farewell. Now get this. The wagons are loaded for the move. Two-minute truck or whatever moving company, you know, my three sons move, whatever. They're out there. They got all the pastor's stuff ready to go. John, I cannot bear to leave. I know not how to go, said Mary Fawcett. Nor can I either, said the saddened pastor. We shall remain here with our people. The order was then given to unload the wagons. Of course, the moving men said, we just loaded them. Anyways, John and Mary Fawcett carried on their faithful ministry in the little village of Waynesgate for a total of 54 years. Their salary was estimated to be never more than the equivalent of $200 a year. Despite false its growing reputation as an outstanding evangelical preacher, scholar, and writer. Among his noted writings was an essay titled Anger, which, get this, became a particular favorite of King George III. It is reported that the monarch promised Pastor Fawcett any benefit that could be conferred, but the offer was declined with this statement. I have lived among my own people, enjoying their love, God has blessed my labors among them, and I need nothing which even a king could supply. Such was the man who gave us these loving words. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. Today, we look at the love amongst a Christian fellowship that Paul expresses in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. And my theme which I think is a scripture's theme is a loving exhortation to stand firm. But notice the modifiers. Notice how he loves them. Notice how, he sees, notice how he's saying, I love you Philippians. 
We've gone through Philippians chapter one and two and three to get to this passage. And as always, the context is very important. So I just wanna summarize just for a moment. In Philippians one, of course, we saw that the church at Philippi had faced some persecution. And, you know, way more than what most of us, probably any of us really face. They've faced persecution. And the apostle Paul is actually in prison, chained to centurions. And he's saying, don't weep for me, I'm I'm being a gospel witness. I have a captive audience. They are literally chained to me. And he, we see this joy, this expression of joy. And, and, and he even addresses in Philippians chapter one how some people are preaching the gospel out of envy, out of the wrong reasons. Their motivations are off. But Paul says, hey, at least the gospel is preached. And then in Philippians 2, we see the focus on unity and self-sacrifice with the example of Jesus. We see, we see the focus on considering others more important than ourselves, looking out for the needs of others before our own. That's so powerful. Considering others more important than ourselves. How much of our strife, envy, jealousy, disputes, disagreements? By the way, disagreement's not wrong. I think we're gonna have disagreements in the new heaven and new earth. I think we will, because we're not gonna be perfect. We just won't sin in those disagreements. One person might say, I'm rooting for that football team. Another say, I'm rooting for that football team. One person says, Bill Cowher is the best coach in the world. Another says, no, no, Bill Belichick. I don't know, make up your story. But you just don't, you just have a friendly discussion. That's not wrong. But so often, we're thinking of ourselves first and not the other person. And so things get heated, they get angry. We say hurtful things. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, consider others first. Consider others more important of higher value than you so that we can think, do I really need to be a critical of someone today? Or do I wanna encourage do I wanna lift them up? Do I wanna be a peacemaker? Do I wanna be part of the Beatitudes, living out the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter five, verses one through 12? What kind of person do I wanna be? Do I wanna brighten a room being others focused? Do I wanna be critical? Sometimes our criticalness is really rooted in codependency. We feel like we have to fix everybody. I have that problem. Honestly, I do. I'm working on it. I honestly am. I'm praying, seeking the Lord about it. Feel like we know what's best for like everyone. So you hear about somebody doing a certain thing, going somewhere, going to a different job, going to a different school, doing something, endorsing something with their grandkids or something else. And we think we, we, we want to voice our hypercritical opinion. And, and sometimes that's right. Sometimes we're close to them. We love them. We can stand on the word of God. And after prayerfully, prayerfully discerning and prayerfully seeking the Lord, we can meet with them in appropriate context, in a loving, gentle way and say, hey, I, th- I think you're off course. I think this is wrong. Many times it's not. It's rooted in pride. It's rooted in one, one-upmanship. So in Philippians 2, we see the idea of self-sacrifice. We see the idea of being others-focused. We see an example of Timothy, Epaphroditus, and the greatest example of Jesus. Then in Philippians 3, we see Paul warn them. It's pretty much the first major warning, and it is a major warning about people who are preaching a false gospel. They're saying that they can be saved by keeping the Jewish law. And what's Paul say? If anybody could be saved by keeping the Jewish law... I could more so. Pharisee amongst Pharisees, uh, uh, Hebrew amongst Hebrews, and so on and so forth. 
And then we have this marvelous passage in, in the middle and, and towards the end of Philippians 3 where Paul's saying, I want to keep persevering. I want to keep focused on Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And we get to Philippians 4. That's where we're at. And we see his love for the Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We, we see this exhortation, this, this challenge to stand firm, and not, not just stand firm in any which way, but stand firm in the Lord. But as I look at it, there's so many other things. My brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, he loves them, he longs for them. My joy and crown. It, it's as if he's talking to, to family, it's as if he's longing for children or grandchildren that he, that he misses. Then he says, stand firm, thus in the Lord. And then it even ends with, my beloved. He is making an inference here based on the previous verses. Again, in the previous verses, he was writing about progress in the gospel through Christ, progress in the gospel through Christ. That's why he says, therefore, therefore, I've talked about progress in the gospel through Christ, therefore, stand firm. But in the midst of the stand, for, stand firm, there's all these other flowers, so to speak. There's all these other wonderful things that we want to notice, and it's his love for the community. It's his love for the church at Philippi. It's his love that uh, for, the, for this people group, the bride of Christ, represented Philippi, that just binds them together. <clears throat> Notice he calls them brothers, as I just mentioned, or it could be translated brothers and sisters. He's using this familial language. It's also communal language. He's addressing the church. And this makes sense when we see the exhortation to unity in the next few verses because we're gonna cover this next week and the week after. The next few verses are all about unity. He, he urges two people to get along in the Lord. So this makes sense. He's about the community of the church. Paul says that he loves them. Paul then says that he longs for them. He loves them and he, he longs for them. He's saying, I love you, Philippians. In Philippians chapter one, verse eight, he writes something sim similar. Paul emphasizes that his Christian brothers and sisters are beloved by repeating the word beloved twice in the same sentence. A major theme in Paul's letters is how God demonstrates divine love for all believers in Christ. Divine love for all believers in Christ. But here, Paul is expressing his own all-inclusive, unconditional love for his brothers and sisters. You get that? Paul is expressing his own all-inclusive, unconditional love for his brothers and sisters. It's all-inclusive. It's unconditional love for his brothers and sisters. Paul repeatedly tells his friends, I love you. I really love you. Not only does he love his family at a distance, but because of the distance, they are longed for. He's, he's far away from them. He's in prison. He longs for them. This is the only time that this term occurs in the New Testament. The only, term, the only time that this term, this idea of longing for, longing for someone is used in the New Testament. Its rarity perhaps adds intensity to the emotion of homesick tenderness. 
especially to the pain of separation that Paul feels and expresses here. Paul calls them his joy and his crown. He also calls them his crown. Gordon Fee, a particular uh, New Testament scholar, says, this profusion of modifiers reminds them once again of his deep feelings for them and his deep concern for their present and future. He has deep feelings for them. He has deep concern for their present and future. Now, how are they his, how are they his crown? I think they're his crown in that the Philippian spiritual success would be Paul's crowning achievement. And their perseverance and final salvation will bring, bring him great joy. As they persevere in the faith, it brings him great joy. And as they, they have spiritual success, as they grow in the Lord, it's, it's a crowning achievement for the Apostle Paul because of his ministry with them. The combination of joy and crown, my joy and crown, indicates that Paul envisions a grand celebration, perhaps like that at the end of the Olympic Games, where the victors are given their wreaths and there is much rejoicing. Since Paul refers to his friends at Thessalonica as the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes, he may have the time of the Lord's return in mind when he refers to the Philippian friends as his joy and crown. In other words, he's thinking about when Jesus comes again. He's thinking about when Jesus comes again, there'll be a celebration. There'll be a grand celebration amongst those he's ministered alongside of. He's thinking about end times, the end times idea here. And that, that, that's true of us too. And we're going to come back to this in a few weeks, actually, in another sermon. But when we invest ourselves in the Lord's kingdom, and we're serving the Lord's church, and we're serving the Lord's kingdom, we will experience reward and celebration for that later on. We may not always get thanked this side of eternity for the things we do for the Lord. And hopefully we're not doing that, doing things for the thank you. But God does remember the good things we do for him. You can see Hebrews chapter six, verse 10. So we have all these loving words, all these loving modifiers. And then we see stand firm in the Lord, stand firm in the Lord. He now exhorts him to stand firm, but why? He's making the application from the previous chapter about persevering in the Christian life. How many of us here also need to be reminded, stand firm in the Lord? I do. Every day we're gonna focus a new challenge. Mine was plumbing last night. If I get into a plumbing problem, I need reminded to stand firm in the Lord because things are about to get wet real quick and the water's gonna spraying everywhere, you know? It's still dripping, but I have a plan. Anyways, every day we face a new challenge and we need reminded to stand firm in the Lord because we face these different things and depending how good we are at them, we may lack patience. And we need to say, we need to exhort it, stand firm in being patient in the Lord. He is in control. Whether you're facing a plumbing problem or a traffic backup or a car issue, that's another one of my things. We should just go back to horses, you know? <laughs> you know, whatever we're facing, we need reminded, Lord's in control. Don't blow your top. The Lord could have stopped that pipe from leaking, but he didn't. You're, it's a reminder that this is part of your sanctification. In other words, this is part of your spiritual growth. Whatever's going on, that traffic jam, Lord's in control. He could have taken care of it for whatever reason he chose to let you be in that traffic jam. Maybe it's your own fault because, I should say my own fault, because you, I tried to put too much in, time, in, in, in a day and I left too late, whatever. The Lord is in control. And we need to remind us, stand firm. 
Or maybe it's an issue with family. Maybe it's an issue with coworkers. Maybe it's an issue with illness. Maybe you're a caregiver. Maybe you're dealing with a major, a major uh, d- diagnosis, you know, the big C, the cancer word, or, or other things, dementia, Alzheimer's. Being a caregiver is amazing, amazing burden and also such a blessing. And it's a reminder, stand firm in the Lord. Every day we'll face new challenges. Stand firm in the Lord. And of course, the church at Philippi was fa- were facing challenges probably somewhat similar to what we face and then also so much more dramatic. In a different day when Christians were really, really, really seriously being persecuted. So he's making the application about persevering in the faith and saying, stand firm. He's about to get very practical about unity in the next few verses. He's gonna talk about unity. He says, stand firm, stand firm in the Lord. And then he's gonna talk about anxiety and prayer. And guess what? Living on less, living on less. And he's gonna say, stand firm, stand firm in the Lord. You know, Philippians 4.13, the Superman passage. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that verse is really about living on less. I can live as a Christian in, in meager circumstances, in a prison, facing persecution, shackled to a guard through Jesus who gives me strength. Stand firm in the Lord. They must remember to stand firm. Stand firm recalls Roman soldiers who never retreated for fear of being killed while under assault. You know, historians can say, who study ancient warfare, that it's not always that the Romans were a better military than the others, you know, when they went after the other people groups and tried to conquer the world. It's not always that they were the best military. Certainly they were, they were equipped and all that stuff. But part of it was they didn't back down. A lot of the other troops, when running at each other in battle, would back down real quick. But the Roman soldiers stood firm. We're called to stand firm in the Lord. How do we stand firm? We must stand, for, stand firm in the Lord. It's about being in the Lord. We must stand firm in dependence on the Lord. Dependence on the Lord. We must stand firm in submission to the Lord. Submission. We must stand firm in the pattern of the Lord. The pattern. So dependence on the Lord, submission to the Lord, the pattern of the Lord. Again, this means living the Jesus way. This means persevering in faith. This means living out. The previous chapter, Philippians 3, 14 through 16, where Paul said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on. Hold true to the gospel. Hold true to the idea that we are not saved by works, not saved by the law, not saved by being moral, but saved by the grace of Jesus. We must live the Jesus way of Philippians 2, 3, and 4, which I've already referenced, considering others more important than ourselves, looking out for the needs of others before our own. This is standing firm, living with Jesus, staying connected to him. He's a true vine, John chapter 15. Must live his way, live the Beatitudes, self-sacrificial, vertical. It's about Jesus. We stand firm in the Lord. Let's continue with applications. Paul calls them brothers and sisters, and Paul writes whom I love. Can we talk to other Christians as those we love? Do we love the bride of Christ? Do we love the church? Do we love the local church? Do we love the people we sit with each day? Are we investing in the lives of others? I'm not saying this is the Bethel way, but this is the American way, and you can discern if it's your way. Oftentimes we keep it at a distance. I don't want to get involved. I love my church, I love my church, I love my church, but I don't wanna get involved. I'll even be critical of them and say they shouldn't do this, they should do that and be very judgmental. But I don't wanna get involved to really help someone out. 
I'll send money, I'll write a check, but I really don't wanna get involved in someone's life. Inviting a young mom who's single to even live with you. I had a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary taught ethics. He said, if you have extra room in your house, you need to be inviting someone else in. And that does fit with scripture, by the way. We're all stewards, it belongs to God anyways. And he oftentimes did that. He would take in people he knew and nephews and others who were homeless for a time. He had ground rules. Hey, you live here, these are your chores, this is your work. If this violated, you're out. But he had extra room and he, he used it for the Lord. Are we willing to actually get involved in people's lives and really help them? Paul loves them. Can we address each other as those whom we love? Do we? Do we really, really, really love each other? Are we a family with other Christians? Are we loving people? Paul says that he longs for them. Do we long for each other? Do we find joy in other people? Do we find joy in our Christian brothers and sisters? Paul calls them his joy. Do we stand firm in the faith? Do we stand firm in the Lord? Can we hold true to Christ's teaching? Can we hold true to the gospel? Can we hold true to the Christian way of not grumbling or complaining, verses 14 through 15. Uh, Paul did give a little exception there. It's in the end notes for the Bible. It's if you're watching football or sports, you can grumble and complain about your team. Other than that, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Have me light here. Other than that, no grumbling and complaining here. Can we hold true to considering others more important than ourselves? Can we hold true to look out for the needs of others first? Can we stand firm in unity? And we're gonna see that in the next two verses next week. It's all gonna be about unity. Can we stand firm? These are some application questions that I encourage you to pray about here in a moment and throughout the week. And, and more than just praying about them yourself, because a lot of times we say, oh, I prayed about it, I'm good. We need Christian brothers and sisters who know us well and we are open to. And we can actually go to them and say, hey, what do you think? Am I overly critical of people? What do you think? Am I, do I have integrity? What do you think? We need Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. Hey, what do you think? Am, am, am I an angry person? Do I need to work on this? How do I work on this? Can we covenant to pray together and sharpen each other with this? I encourage you to do that. In order for God to bring out the best in his children, he brings about scenarios in our lives to build strength and character. Do you realize that? God brings about scenarios in our life to bring about strength and character. When building our physical bodies, development takes in the form of pumping weights, right? Running on a treadmill and participating in activities that require tennis shoes. Workout involves sweat, heavy breathing, and perspiration because something is being developed. God allows trials and adversity to put us in gymnasium situations. Do you realize that? God puts us in gymnasium situations. Just like the father did with his son, Jesus, he creates a workout scenario that includes a difficulty that we must work through. And this isn't building up physical muscle, but spiritual muscle. Tony Evans shares an illustration. A lady came to the gym. She looked like she was there for an intense workout. She had all the proper workout gear, she had her water bottle to her side. She stepped into a clear area and bit down to touch her toes in order to stretch. She looked very, very serious about her workout. She had wristbands on her wrist and a sweatband around her head. 
She grabbed some dumbbells and reached down and lifted a couple times. She wiped herself with a towel. She said, woof, that's enough for today. The lady looked the part, but she had not truly come to the gym for a workout. This is Tony Evans. Many Christians come to church every Sunday looking like they are ready for a workout. We wear the right clothes, sing the right songs, and talk the right talk. But building real strength requires real effort and a little sweat. God figures that we will not voluntarily go to a spiritual gym. So he brings a gym to us. Adverse circumstances, cross-bearing situations, difficult scenarios, and problematic encounters all serve as opportunities for Christian growth. I encourage you during this next song, we're gonna have two songs. Uh, We're gonna close with the doxology, which will be a cappella here in just a minute. But first, Billy's gonna start after my prayer, uh, He Hideth My Soul. It's just a contemplative, meditative song. The altars are open. They're going to be open for the closing song. Pray at your seats. Come forward to the altars. We'll be here to pray with you. You can pray by yourself too, but we're here to pray with you about anything on your heart, anything on your mind. It may be something with the application questions I just gave. It may be something else. It may be something unrelated to the sermon, but you just have been burdened with it through the week. And you walked in with this burden on your mind. Let us pray with you. Let us support you. Let us be the body of Christ, encouraging one another. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says that we're called to encourage one another. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you so much for your word and so much for what we see about the community and, and how, how we're supposed to be as a community. And Lord Jesus, we can't do this on our own. We, we need the Holy Spirit. And so Lord God, and we need the church. We need the church. The Holy Spirit works through the word of God in the church. And so Lord God, as we... Meditate on the words of this song and, and or uh, just meditate on you right now. I pray, Lord God, that you will add the blessing to your word. I pray that you will convict us by your word. Your word is very convicting. Help us to love one another. Help us to be bound together as, a bride, as part of the bride of Christ. Help us to stand firm. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Billy, go and play this song, and right after the praise team will come up.